0: Good morning. Well, this is a story that many of us have heard. This may be a news story, though, to some of you. I don't know. David and Goliath. Cody read us our story so well earlier, but I want to tell more about this story because there's a lot to the life of David that if you're new to faith, you may not even know. And I think it provides some real hope for us uh, as we go on our, our, our lives this week. I remember growing up, my brother was two years younger than me, and we liked to act out biblical stories around the house from time to time. We were preacher's kids, so that's what we did, I guess. Um, We probably played, you know, picked athletes on the sports fields a little more. But we did this one night. We were at my grandparents' house, and we remember the story of David and Goliath. I don't know if we'd been to VBS earlier that day or what. And so I remember uh, we were sleeping in the same bed. Uh, We were probably, I don't know, six and eight. And I was the eight-year-old, which meant I was going to play Goliath because I was bigger than my brother, and he played David. So he, you know, we went through the whole story, wound up his slingshot, and I was standing at, near the foot of the bed, and, you know, planning my fall, you know, because I knew what was ahead in the story. He got to be the hero, but anyway. So I'm, I'm ready to fall, and what I had miscalculated was I was a little too close to the headboard for the fall I was about to make. So he throws the slingshot, you know, and, and I fall And my head kind of hits the headboard. I think I still got a scar to prove it, actually. That was not the story of David that I, I I mean, I remember this story better because of that, right? But it's not exactly how the story, well, he did experience pain like I experienced, maybe. So I understand what it's like to feel like Goliath. I think some of us do as well, right? That we think we're in charge, we think things are going to go well, and then all of a sudden this little boy comes out of nowhere, and something shocks us in our life, and we didn't expect it. The story of David and Goliath starts with 40 days that happen the same way over and over again. For 40 days, this giant comes out to the people of Israel, God's people. And he says, I want you to send your best fighter out and we're going to have a a duel to the death. And if your people win, then my people will be your servants. But when I win, then you're going to be our servants. For 40 days, the same thing happens. Every morning, there's not a rooster to wake everybody up because Goliath is up and ready to go. And he screams across the way to the Israelites, all right, who's it going to be? You guys step up and fight. It's time to decide this once and for all. Well, for 40 days, shame had filled the camp of Israel because for 40 days, no one stepped up to the challenge. And these are soldiers, right? These are guys that are trained for the fight, but there's something about Goliath they're not ready to step up against. And I have to think that King Saul, Israel's king, is a, a bit ashamed as well, don't you think? Everyone's kind of looking to him, wondering when he's going to step up, and King Saul's not about to step up. Until one day, after 40 days of this, a young boy named David shows up on the scene. And he wasn't used to uh, a giant making this call. He wasn't, didn't know how this all went. And he hears the challenge, and he steps up, and he says, I'm going to fight him. And King Saul, you know, is like, Probably partly relieved because he doesn't have to go fight him. But on the other hand, it's like, am I going to send this boy out for the future of my kingdom? Is that really the best idea? Well, let's pick up in the story in First Samuel 17. We'll have the words on the screen as well. This is what happens. First Samuel 17, verse 26. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The naivete of youth, you might think, right? Who does this boy David think he is? All these strong warriors, the king won't step up to fight. But here he is saying, I'll go and fight. And I think King Saul has to think, this may not be a good idea, but if I'm not going to do it, then somebody's got to go do it. So we'll just take the casualty of David, and then we'll go on with our lives serving the Philistines. But as the story goes on, we pick up reading in verse 34. It says there, But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine, he likes to say that over and over again, will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine, Saul said to David. Go, and the Lord be with you. And in the end, David kills Goliath. And for years, sportscasters have been using this as such a wrong analogy, right? Because the Royals making it to the World Series isn't the upset this is. This is a boy against a giant with a slingshot. And you know who's going to win that thing, but in this story, it's the other way around. The one that you wouldn't expect to win ends up winning. And after killing Goliath, things continue on and go quite well for David. I mean, look at his resume. Look at the things that he does in his life. Not only is he a warrior, he also plays his lyre and harp for King Saul. So he's, a, he's like the, the, the kingdom's musician, and he puts Saul at ease. He's, he kills Goliath along with a lion and a bear with his bare hands, which is pretty cool. And then he, uh, he anoints, he's anointed as the next king of Israel. This is going to be the king that follows after King Saul. He's also a poet. In fact, there's a book called Psalms in the, in the Old Testament with 150 psalms. He wrote over half of those psalms. So this is not just some warrior who has blood on his hands. This is somebody who loves his God and tries to draw people toward him. And all Israel loved David. In fact, look what it says in 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. This is the cry of Israel about this boy, who's growing up, as they dance, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Now, if you're King Saul, you're already ashamed enough that you didn't step up to fight Goliath, and this boy had to do it for you. So there's already questions about his leadership. But what happens when you are listening in on the conversations in the city, and all of a sudden you hear this song that says, yes, yeah, Saul killed his thousands, that's pretty cool, but here's young David who killed his tens of thousands. All of a sudden, Saul's a little bit nervous about his position. He's he's not so sure he's doing what he should be. He doesn't like the fact that Israel might be turning against him in some way. This is how the Bible describes Saul's feeling following that in verse 8. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, "I'll pin David to the wall." But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David, but had departed from Saul. So he, he he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops. In their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. Have you ever seen this kind of leadership struggle before? You've got the guy who has been the leader, the guy who has been the boss, the guy with the corner office. He's been in leadership. And then this young one starts to come in, and you're not so sure what to do about this because that's a threat, isn't it? It's a threat to know how to give up leadership, and yet this is going to be the challenge of organizations and and, and churches. The success of a church is how it hands off faith from one generation to the next. And So it is not a threat for us to see the next generation rise up. It should be the very thing we want God to do. So the, the, the kids and teens and our youth, these are not future church leaders. These are church leaders that we need to be equipping and training and calling into ministry. All of us need to be a part of this task but sometimes that can be threatening. And for King Saul, it was. How do I give up leadership? This has been the anointed king already, but, but I'm in charge, and how's this gonna go? And some of you have been on the other side of that. You've been the young one who's ready to step up into leadership, and you, you keep hitting all these snags because people on top of you aren't ready to let go of their place. This is the struggle between King Saul and King David. So if you find yourself in that place today, it's important to see what happens here. See, the reason Saul does not succeed is because the Lord had departed from him. The reason David succeeds is because the Lord was with him. So no matter what your resume is, no matter how impactful you might be, no matter what your position or office or title might be, what matters is not what your title is. It matters if the Lord our God is with you. And if he's on your side, nothing can fail. And sometimes King Saul will get credit for a man like David who is following God. And if right now you're not in that corner office and you're working your way up and you're trying to be faithful in the midst of that, let me just encourage you, be faithful in that calling right now. Because while someone else might get the credit, the truth is God is working through you. There are a lot of bosses and organizations that are doing great things because there are people in the kingdom of God that are just trying to be faithful people who are working. And it may be frustrating in this point, but keep at it. Keep faithful. Keep doing what you're doing. Put your head down and keep at work. David's time was to come. It's tough for Saul, not only because David is popular in the kingdom, but David's popular in Saul's family. Jonathan, Saul's son, is David's best friend. And, and, and Jonathan seems to have more loyalty for David than he has for King Saul, his dad. But not only that, King Saul's daughter is uh, named Michael, and King Saul's daughter ends up marrying David. And it's, it's interesting. I don't know if you remember the time when you asked you know, a father-in-law about t- taking on the daughter in marriage. There's an interesting story about the conversation between David and Saul about Michael. Uh, do you remember this story? It probably didn't show up in VBS. He, he says, okay, I'll let you marry my daughter if you can uh, gather up 100 Philistine foreskins. That's an odd story, right? What do we do with that? But the kind of guy David was, he goes, I'm up for the challenge, and he brings back 200. That's kind of awkward to bring that up in church. It's just part of the Bible. I'm trying to bring it up, Okay. Tells you something about David. Try to figure out the application for yourself. But this is the kind of guy David was. He was a guy who went above and beyond. Even when he was not in the position of power, he did what was best. And and, and Saul finds himself in a place where Michael and Jonathan, his kids, love David more than they love him. So there's a great threat to Saul's life. There's a great threat to his power, his position, his authority. David's more beloved by Saul's kids than Saul is by his own kids. So what does Saul do? Well, he sends David on the road, and he puts him in charge of 1,000 men on the front lines of the battle because he knows David can win battles, so he puts him out there. But I have to wonder if there's a part of him that hopes, if I put him on the front lines, maybe he'll die, and I won't have to worry about this threat. So that way he doesn't have blood on his hands, right? And that, that's a significant story because David remembers that strategy a little later in the story. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But David is this faithful man. He's trying to follow what God's called him to do. He's a man who honors Saul, even when maybe he shouldn't have that honor. But he, Saul's God's anointed at that time. He's the king. So in 1 Samuel 24, there's this story. David's on the run. Saul's trying to get him and, 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 and wipe him out. And in this scene, uh, King Saul has to relieve himself. There's humor in these stories. we got to see that, right? I mean, if you're not laughing at Scripture, you're not reading Scripture. So he has to relieve himself. He has to go to the restroom. So he goes into this cave, and guess who's in the cave hiding there? David and his men are hiding in this cave. So he's trying to get away from David, and David is right behind him as he's trying to go to the restroom. And and David goes up to him, and his his men are like, just kill him now. You'll be king if you kill him. Maybe God has provided him into your hands. And I think we got to be careful about this, church. Sometimes people will say they know the will of God. They can even use the words of God about a future that God has planned but it may not be the right timing. We need to hear the Holy Spirit and his word, not just people who encourage us to say things. I mean, even Satan in the temptation in the desert with Jesus, he speaks the word of God, right? He quotes things in a certain context, but it's not who God's calling Jesus to be in that season. Well, the story goes on, and, 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 and it's neat. Let's read what happens in 1 Samuel 24, verses 5 through 7. Afterward, David was conscience-stricken. This is after he cut the corner off his robe. Saul's robe, and not killed him. For having cut off a corner of his robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed. Or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went that way. This is the kind of integrity that David had. For those of you who are waiting for maybe a promotion or something next, you need to take the cue of David here. Because when he's got a chance to take him out, even when he's got information like some of you may have on someone above you, he was faithful and just knew that this is my place for now and I'm going to be faithful in this moment because if I'm unfaithful now, I'm going to be unfaithful wherever God puts me next. Can't you tell how pure David's heart is? This happens again a couple chapters later. He's got a chance to kill Saul in his sleep and his men are trying to get him to do it. He says, no, I will not do this. The God has put him in charge. And that's what it's supposed to be. So David becomes the king of Israel eventually, but not by his own power. Saul ends up dying in a battle. Saul falls on his own sword. It's kind of a shameful ending. And Jonathan dies in the same battle. Do you remember what David does in this scene? He doesn't call a coronation party. He doesn't call for the crown to be put on his head. He mourns over Saul and Jonathan. He actually writes a lament in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1 for Saul and Jonathan. Not just his friend Jonathan, for Saul, the guy who's tried to kill him all these years. This is a man who is after God's own heart, who does the best thing he can in the season he's in, in the position he's in, to be faithful to God. And everything was positive in David's life up to this point. He becomes king. God continues to give him victory until a scene in 2 Samuel chapter 11, one that we probably left out of your childhood stories as well. 2 Samuel 11, we'll start reading in verse 1. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. If you're one who likes to mark in your Bibles, this is a very important verse. Because this is the season, it says in Scripture, at the time when kings go off to war, where is David? He's the king, but he's not at war. He's back home at the palace. He sent his men out to do the job, but he's back where he shouldn't be. And if some of you have been through some hard times You've been through some difficulties that you're the cause of. Not things that happen to you as a a, a victim of something outside of yourself. But sometimes it happens because we find ourselves in the wrong place at the wrong time. That we were supposed to be off to war. We were supposed to be doing this thing. We were supposed to be accountable. And we weren't accountable in those moments. And it turned into something we never expected it would be. And that's what happens to David, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. And David sent, uh, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So what starts with David being in the wrong place at the wrong time turns into a situation of lust which turns into a situation of adultery, which turns into a situation of having a child illegitimately. And this, this is one of the most shameful things that anyone on earth, on earth has ever done. This is a, a king who sent his men out to battle, and he's back sleeping with one of his, man's, uh, his soldier's wife. I mean, you talk about shameful. You talk about if this was going on in our day, boy, I hope we'd hear about this and do something about this. This is inappropriate. And David steps through those doors, and in that moment, he has a choice. Am I going to admit what I've done wrong? Am I going to confess that? Am I going to try to correct this wrong? But he doesn't do that, does he? No, he tries to cover it up. He invites Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from the battle. And he says, hey, I got an idea. Why don't you go home and enjoy your wife uh, for a little while? You know, he's got this plan. I can cover it up if if he thinks it's his baby. So David comes up with his plan, and he starts to work it out. And instead of that, Uriah is so faithful and honorable. You remember David being honorable when he was in his position. Well, now David's at the top, and Uriah's being faithful. Uriah doesn't do that. He sleeps at the the, the palace, and, and the next morning he says, Did you not go home to see your wife? No, I didn't. He says, okay, well, come over to my house tonight. I got a, 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 I got a great night, party going on. Why don't you come on over? And so he comes over to David's house the next night, and David gets him drunk in that scene. And, and, and sends him home. Why don't you go home, you know, Uriah? And this is, boy, this is a huge part of this story. Because David was the faithful one, the man full of honor, who did everything God wanted him to do. But in this scene, Uriah has more integrity drunk than David has sober. And it's a shameful scene. This is the king of Israel. You've all heard about King David. You, you may have forgotten about this piece, that David was a man of honor, but when he got to the top, he lost it. So what does David do? Does he confess at this point? No. He says, well, if is not going to fit into my plan, I've got another plan for him. He sends him back with a letter to Joab, the commander of the army, and says, Joab, I want you to put him on the front lines and draw back and make sure that he dies in the battle that ensues. It's like the same strategy Saul had done for him, and now he's employing it to try to get rid of his problem. And sure enough, Uriah dies, and there's just a heap of trouble that happens after. It's Second uh, Samuel 11, verse 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. And after the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. How many of us, if our story was written in Scripture, would have a tagline at some point in our story, but what Colin did displeased the Lord. But what Jennifer did displeased the Lord. But what Tim did displeased the Lord. We've all been through these moments, and if Scripture were written, we'd have some embarrassing things written for people are Aren't you glad that your story's not written in the best-selling book of all time? But David's is, and and he displeased the Lord in this moment. So David tries to cover up his sins, and it, it causes all kinds of trouble in his family. His son uh, ends up dying, or his child that he has with Bathsheba. Amnon and Tamar, half-sister and half-brother, end up having issues. And and Absalom ends up killing his brother. And then Absalom dies from Joab, the commander who kills David's son, which wasn't his command. Not what he wanted. It's like we talked about week one in the series with Noah. One sin in your life. You think you can control it? That it's just going to be this one time and it'll be over. But what we find in our lives is that one sin we thought, or that one time we, we were you know, in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is just a one-time decision. It turns in and wreaks all kinds of havoc we would have never expected in that first moment. That's what happens with David. David's life falls apart at this moment. But the good news of this story is still to come because the good news of this story is even though what David did displeased the Lord, God still used him in amazing ways in the days to come. But it's not just because God does that with everyone. There's something specific and special about David that opens God up to do that in his life. And I want to look at that because some of us may be in that place where we feel like our story right now is call and displease the Lord. You may feel like that's your story right now. And I want to say there's more to this story that I think you can take on. But first, let's look at our resumes for a second when it comes to David and us, okay? Um, this is kind of dangerous to ask people to raise their hands on this because there might be one in the crowd. I guess there always is, right? <laughs> so it's dangerous to make comparisons because there's always one in the room. So if you happen to be the exception this morning, forgive me, okay? But, but is there anybody in the room who, who has slept with a married person, gotten them pregnant, tried to get the spouse to sleep with your affair partner to cover something up and then kill the spouse when the plan didn't work out? That's King David. And if you're raising your hand, let me keep going. Because in 2 Samuel 24, David is told by God, don't count the fighting men because if you count the men, you're going to trust in the men you have, the numbers you have, not in God who brings victory. They count 800,000 men. David requests that Joab count the army. And do you know what the consequence was of David's decision? 70,000 people die in a plague because of that decision. So if you were raising your hands, I'm just guessing you can drop them now, right? Because have you been responsible for the deaths of 70,000 people? So this is David. This is King David, the one that we all emulate and think, man, God worked through King David. And let me just say, if you think you can't be used by God, Because of something you've done in your past, your resume is not as strong as David's in terms of sin. And God's redemption of David can be the same redemption in your life that he wants to use. In fact, it may be the very pains that you've caused others that he may use you to help others when they have those pains going on in their life. See, there's a children's Bible story about David. We heard it earlier. It's a great story about God defeating Goliath. We need to know that there are giants in our lives that that God can destroy. But this story of David goes deeper than that. Sometimes the giants you kill early in life, those aren't the biggest giants you're going to face. There's going to be a time where you face some kind of temptation that may take you down for a moment. And you may think that's the end of the story, but God has a way of defeating those giants too. So God was able to use David. So why was God able to use David? Because it looks interesting, because Saul can't be used by God. Like, like, he just throws Saul out, and it seems like Saul does, doesn't do as bad of things as David does. But he's able to use David, and he's not able to use Saul. Why, why is that? Well, let's look at how these kings were chosen. Maybe this is instructive about the leaders we choose in our spaces as well. First Samuel, go back to 1 Samuel, chapter 9. This is the calling of, of King Saul. This is what they were looking for when they were looking for the first king of Israel. First Samuel 9, beginning in verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Appia of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. All right, you see the description of Saul? How did they choose Saul? They chose Saul based on outward appearance how many of you do all kinds of interviews, right? And this is how we tend to do it. We look at resumes. We, we look at all the things we can gather, and that tends to be external. And how many times do you look back at some of those hires and go, man, we blew it. How, how did we not see it in the interview? We, we spent all this time with them, and some of you may be saying that about your preacher at this point. I don't know. But we go through this, and we look at externals, and, but the question is not what externals say. That's not how we choose people in the kingdom of God. We've got to know what their hearts are like. So when we choose elders, we don't look at who has the biggest bank account. We don't look at who gives the most to the church. That shouldn't be how this works. It should be who's the person who's a man after God's own heart? Who's the one who's pursuing him? He may have messed up big time. She may have messed up big time when it comes to leadership. But God can use them if their heart is right before God. Notice how they choose the second time around when Saul failed. 1 Samuel 16, a few chapters later in verse 7. They've already made one mistake. So as they're choosing again, this is the response of God. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In a sense, God is saying to Samuel, Don't choose a king like you did last time. All the other nations are going to choose Goliaths to go out and fight, but I'm a God who defeats Goliaths. And if I have one person who's a man after my own heart, and you choose him, you're going to be way better off than someone with all the right uh, things on their resume to prove they're who they should be. This is how the kingdom works, and we get it wrong every time when we choose on outward appearance. What is the heart of a person? And this is why you can have made all the mistakes in your past that you want to make, but if you made those mistakes and your heart is right before God, that's, that's the description God gives to David, isn't it? He's a man after God's own heart. And by outward appearance, we make the judgment. We say, he was not a man after God's own heart. What kind of man of God would do this? That's what Scripture says. That's what God says. Acts 13, this is how Paul describes David. Again, the guy we just described with all these mess-ups in his life. Acts chapter 13, verse 22. After removing Saul, he made David their king. And God testified concerning him, I found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Look, we've made lots of mistakes in this room. We can account those all we want, but those things don't discount you from being used in the kingdom. What discounts you is having every outward appearance that things are okay, but not having a heart that pursues God. Oh, I'll t- I will take people that don't have any skills at all, it seems like, right? But if they have a heart that is driven toward God, give me a hundred of those people and we'll take the city for Jesus. Because it is not about dressing up and making things look good in outward appearance. It's about laying our hearts before God. And in the next few moments, we're going to have a chance to do just that. Maybe right now your heart is not where it needs to be. Maybe your heart right now is is not where God wants it. And by all outward appearances, things look good. You know, people wouldn't ask you if something was wrong because, man, you're a person of standing in the city. Things look good on the outside, but you know deep down that's not where you are. Psalm 51 is the psalm that David writes on the back end of this whole scene with Bathsheba and Uriah and Absalom and all these things that happened. This is one of those psalms I return to over and over again. Because in this psalm, I find hope when I'm at my lowest. When I need to confess sin, which we do too little of in church. We probably ought to do this every week when we come in. We just come to the door and we say, here's my sins of the week, God forgive me of those things so I can worship a holy God. Every week we ought to have an opportunity to do this. This week we're gonna do this in a special way. Maybe you want to go back to the back and pray with those who are in the prayer room, some of the prayer leaders and elders and spouses that are back there. Or, or maybe this morning you just need to sit where you are and confess this to God, let these words be your prayer. But we're going to work through Psalm 51 for just a few moments in, in a different way than you might have uh, dealt with it in the past, just trying to hear in different ways and just reading it just in one fell swoop. These are, this Psalm 51 has created all kinds of songs that we sing even in our hymnal. So right now we're going to look at Psalm 51. You're welcome to open up to that right now. But what I'd like to ask you to do is, is, is check your heart right now, not the externals. That's not important. God looks at the heart. Check what that heart, where that heart is right now. And if you need to confess something to God and say, this is not right, I want to make this better, then do it. But wherever you find yourself, we, we, we invite you to reflect this morning on this psalm that David wrote. And I hope it'll be a, a blessing to you today.